I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. Picking up in verse 16, I mentioned in the first service, let me do the same here. I've often recommended to you Dr. Riken's commentary on Ecclesiastes. I used it along with several others um, for preparation. However, this week, a lot of the beginning part of my sermon comes from his sermon on this text, and I want to give credit where credit is due. Of course, it's changed a little. Uh, But I do want to acknowledge that. So if you're reading it and you're saying, wait a minute, I heard that somewhere. That's where you heard it. We're going to be reading verse 16 of chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, but both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, and to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Father, we ask now for wisdom and insight from your spirit as we look into your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, it's brought up almost every week in this series, Solomon has been on his search for the true meaning of life. And although he's made some important discoveries along the way, he still hasn't found what he's looking for. He he keeps coming up short. The more he seeked, the more he struggled to make sense of the world. Uh, Looking for the meaning of life was like chasing after the wind. We've heard that. He looked for meaning and all he found was meaninglessness. And so here we are at the end of chapter 8, we kind of get a summary of the frustration of a philosopher. We read, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night does one eye see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims that no, he cannot find it out. And so here's Solomon, the frustrated philosopher. He's, he's applied his heart. 
He's come to the conclusion, man cannot find it out, is said. He says he will not find it out. He cannot find it out. The, the philosopher may claim to know. Uh, the university professor may claim to know. Uh, the scientist may claim to know, but their claims are foolish. They cannot find it out. All this toil for an answer only leaves you with sleepless nights. That's what Solomon is saying. And neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Uh, The seeker, uh, the one who strives after this, seeks to find what seems to be the answer. But then, uh, as he gets an answer to that, only more questions arise, and he can never come to a conclusion. The more he tried to find the answer, the more restless we read that he became. And not only this, but the toil and work of life under the sun is never ending. There's just not enough hours in the week. One, one preacher put it this way, even if you gave us eight days a week, we would likely fill it with nine days of work. Life is full of toil. There's no rest for the weary. So the bottom line is this. We, we all fail. Every one of us, we all fail to understand and and fully grasp his, that is, God's holy ways. They are beyond finding out. And so Solomon, once again, for the hundredth time, it seems, confronts us with the limits of human knowledge. And so it begs the question, how do we live our lives in light of that limitation? How, how, How do we, if we can't find things out, If we can't grasp God's holy ways, how are we to live? How should we proceed in life? And some have responded with doubt. That is, they are atheists. They deny the existence of God. We can't find it out because it doesn't exist. Others acknowledge there is a God, but he's not really good at being one. You know, he fails at what he's trying to do. He, He doesn't communicate clear. We can't figure it out. Others just remain neutral. They're agnostic. Uh, Since there's no way of knowing, they just give up. And that last option seems reasonable in one sense. If you can't know everything, you can't really be an atheist. How do you know? Um, But if you you don't know God and you can't figure it out, well, then you're kind of neutral. And so that makes sense that that you're not going to find it out. But that's not the the solution Solomon chose here. Solomon did not allow his inability to find the answers to his quest, to his, you know, his uh, questions, to kind of cause him to conclude, well, God doesn't exist, or uh, God's this terrible leader, it's all God's fault, or, or I'm just going to give up. He, he kept going. And he responds here from a position of faith. It's a position of faith. It's, it's, it's kind of a faith, it was a faith that's seeking understanding. He takes a firm stand and he tries to understand. It's faith seeking knowledge. He, he would likely say with doubting Thomas, I, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I do believe, I just don't grasp it all. He knew God was at work even if he didn't know what God was up to. There were many things he failed to understand. That is true, but he never gave up his faith in God. He knew God was in charge. That's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart. 
how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Solomon's wisdom, as we've learned, exceeded everyone's wisdom. And yet here we are, He's, he's measured it all, he's studied it all, he can't figure it all out, and his answer is the line from a children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's the conclusion. It's a, it's a pretty simple concept. That's why it's in a children's song. But see, that idea of the hand of God, that image has profound implications. In the Bible, it refers to God's power. It, it refers to his love. It refers to his supervision, his, his kind of control, his sovereign oversight of his people and their actions. That's the idea behind it. It's a picture for you and I who believe it, it, to help us grasp, to understand that God is watching over his children and he'll never let us go. See, it's meant to be an image of comfort and assurance, an image that actually Jesus used. We read about it. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus says, and then he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. We're not going to find all the answers in life. Um, That's not where we're going to find rest for our souls. All we need to do is faithfully rest in the hands of of God. All we need to do is have faith in a Savior who has the whole world in his hands. And so the answer to all this is faith. It's not faith in faith. Do you know what I mean by that? Not faith in faith. It's, it's kind of like the faith, well, everything's going to work out. I just believe it. I just believe it. I just believe it. That's not what we're talking about here. And it's not even faith that things will change for the better this side of heaven. That's not the kind of faith. It's not faith that eventually if I try hard enough, I'm going to get all the answers I need. That's not the faith we're talking about. It's simply faith in Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, as it were, that he has all the answers. And that's the truth. That's the answer. But see, for Solomon, living on the side of the cross that he lived on, his faith here is mixed with doubt. Either that's true of him uh, personally or it's true as far as him telling this story in the book. And so at the end of verse 1, he states, whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. Now Solomon here is referring to either the love or hate of God. Love in the Bible refers to his acceptance and hate to his rejection. You, you read about it. Uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Right? He means that Jacob is accepted by faith, and Esau is rejected in his unbelief. And, and so Solomon is saying, I, I've never lost faith in the sovereignty of God. I know God is in control. He, he knows God is governing the universe and governing all everything and, and actually governing everyone and all of their deeds. What Solomon didn't know again, at least at this point in the journey or to make his point in this book, was whether God was for him or against him. That's his issue. He didn't know if being in the hand of God was a good thing or something to be dreaded. 
The Bible says that God's right hand is filled with righteousness. That's good news for us, Psalm 48. And that we are the sheep of his hand. That's a wonderful metaphor, Psalm 95. And we just read that no one snatches uh, the children of God out of his hand. That's a wonderful image. But the Bible also says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's not a contradiction. The point is, it's not enough to know that we are in God's hands. Everyone is in God's hands. The question is whether God's hand is for you or against you. The question is, is he your friend or is he your foe? That's a question everyone here should be able to answer. You want to know the answer to this. Have you been saved from God's wrath by God's mercy in Christ, or are you still under his wrath and await the dreadful discovery that you'll be crushed by his mighty hand. That's what Psalm 68 says. God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. And so it's with that question in mind, is he for me or against me, that Solomon is wrestling with. And, and, and Solomon tells us first that, if you look at verse 2 and following, that it was virtually impossible to answer that question by looking at the experiences of people. And we have a tendency to do that. Notice what he says. It's the same for all. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, he says. Um, It happens to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. It happens to the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Now, if you remember last week, um, Solomon taught us that although the righteous reap the fruit of the wicked and vice versa, in the end, at the final judgment, we'll be victorious. That was the good news. Well, here he's saying something a little different. He's distinguishing two types of people. And he's saying there are only two types of people. There are the righteous and the wicked. And then he's saying because that uh, what goes on in life happens to both of those groups, the righteous and the wicked, the same, essentially the same thing, whether you prosper and prolong your days or not, it's not an indication of whether God is for you or against you. And we think that way. Think about it. When Hurricane uh, Ian hit the Florida coast, notice that it, it didn't discriminate between the righteous house and the wicked house. If you saw the images, it just decimated the city, righteous and wicked. When the recession hit our country, uh, those who honor God and those who didn't both lost money. Right? And ultimately, both the righteous and the wicked suffered death. And so there's no way to say or to know that when we look at what happens in the world and then say, oh, that person's wicked, that person is righteous. Jesus says, our Father is in heaven. He makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so Solomon says it's impossible to tell who has and who does not have God's eternal favor just by looking at them. Many people assume that if they belong to God, he will reward his followers. 
and they will prosper. You'll, re, you'll, you'll listen to them on television often. They're often asking you to give them their money so they can prosper. But in either case, they're telling you that. And then, and then they're quoting scriptures. Um, and, and Solomon says, being rich or not rich doesn't determine anything about being evil or good. Um, and you'll be blessed financially, though, if you're a follower of God. That's how you know if God's for you. And, and Solomon says, no. That's not true at all. It's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. And so looking to earthly blessing is a sign that God is for you, is a, a fool's errand. It tells you nothing about your relationship with God. And Solomon wanted to make that clear. Now, uh, he was also frustrated by this. Look at verse 3. He calls it evil. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to to all. It's an evil. It's evil, he says. And, and, And speaking of evil, he then continues. And notice what he says. Also... The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Everything seems so futile. Does anything even matter? It's as if Solomon has finally succumbed to the reality. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, but the vanity of life wins. Uh, See, the person who gives up is right. Why bother? I quoted this in a, in a different sermon on, on, in this book. Shakespeare said, Life is only a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's what it sounds like. He's saying, Who cares? It, it, it's maddening, he says. It, it, it'll drive you mad. Now, in light of the question, right, that Solomon was asking, Solomon's frustration and despair seem to be found in that question, whether God is for us or against us. Think about it. Think about what, what's, what's been said here. He, he, he says we're all in God's hands, good and bad, but he, does, he, he doesn't know whether it's love or hate. So here we are all in God's hands. So I'm not sure if, if God loves me or hates me. And then he says... My heart is full of evil. Our hearts are so overwhelmingly evil, he says, it can drive us mad. And if it drives us mad, imagine what God thinks about our evil hearts. And the Bible's clear on that. God is angry with sin. He hates sin. And God is righteous and holy and just. And and so what is an evil sinner to do who cannot escape the righteous, holy, just, sovereign hand of an angry God, a God who's angry with my sin. Do you see his dilemma? If, if you hear what's being said here, you're reminded of a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Um, it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you haven't read it, you need to because stuff like that is rarely preached today. What he does is simply string together a, a lot of metaphors to paint for us this, the, the dreadful plight that, that sinners face who are at the very mercy of God. 
They're at the very mercy of God, and yet God is terribly angry with them. Now, already that sounds different than what you hear today. God loves everybody the same. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because of the sin and evil in our hearts, God's angry with us. And so he builds on that. He, he, he's, it's based on Deuteronomy 32, 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. Now, he's preached this once, and it kind of fell on deaf ears. He preached it again. I don't know how, I don't remember the time frame difference. And, and, and that's part of the Great Awakening, the revival that broke out. And when he preached it, I am told, I don't know how people know this, but that, that he, he basically just looked down at his notes and, and, and said the things you're about to hear. He says, your wickedness makes you as if it were heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, that is out of his hand, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and all your own righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock." Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. You are a burden to it. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow may ready to string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood." That God, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times worse in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in yours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. See, apart from Christ, apart from Jesus, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Do you, do you, do you see what, what he's saying here in that chapter and what Solomon is saying? I am only breathing because God gives me breath. And he could snatch it from me like this. He could snatch it from you that quickly. And the same God that can give you breath or take away your breath is angry with you apart from Christ. 
And so you understand Solomon's play. We all are in the hands of God, verse 1. We all need to ask and answer the question, is it love or is it hate? We all are going to suffer and die, verses 2 and 3. And we all have hearts that are full of evil. And so what are we to do if we're in the hands of an angry God and we're sinful? Is there any hope at all? And even for Solomon at that time, he thinks there is. Look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. See, confronted with the inability to answer every question and figure everything out, when confronted with the reality of being a sinner in the hand of an angry God, when confronted with the reality of your own death, not everyone just throws in the towel and gives up. Not everyone says, who cares what's the use? There are those who still hold on to hope. They cling to the ancient motto, where there's life, there's hope. That's a, that's a summary of, uh, of verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. While there is life, there is hope. And so Solomon is saying, it's better to be alive than dead. And the reason is that living, the living know what? They know that they're eventually going to die. And since they know, and they're not dead already, and they know they're eventually going to die, they can prepare for that. They can prepare for death. You can prepare for that. You have breath at this moment because God gave it to you. And you can prepare for that moment when you won't have breath. And you can prepare for eternity now. See, living lays before us the hope that we can still amend our ways. The dead don't have that luxury any longer. We're told Solomon says that the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, he says, for the memory of them is forgotten. That's verse 5. Verse 6, he says, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. They're gone. They, uh, uh, this is the starkest description, Phil Reichen says, of the dead in all the Bible. They're gone. There's no more rewards for them. They're, they're soon forgotten. Their passions here listed love and hate and envy. They've perished. They have no more share in life. That is the fate of everyone who lives life apart from God. And that is the fate. And Solomon says that while we are living, we need to learn from that reality. We still have breath. See, what Solomon wrote about the dead can be reversed. It can be reversed and applied to, to you and me, the, the living. The dead do not know what is happening on earth. That's obvious. But the living can and do and, and, and can respond to it. The dead cannot add anything to their reward or, or to their reputation, but we can, the living. The dead cannot relate to people on earth but, but, uh, by loving or hating or even envying, but we can. Uh, Solomon here is emphasizing the importance of seizing the opportunity while you have breath, while you're alive. There's a hope there, he's saying. Now, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that the hope mentioned here is only an earthly hope. It's an earthly hope. As one writer said, verses 4 to 6 contains no ultimate Christian hope, but a real, thorough, provisional, earthly one. 
It's a provisional hope. For us to find hope beyond the grave, we must go beyond Solomon's words here and consider what else the Scripture has to say. And, and, and I want to do that. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 16. We need to go beyond these words. We'll tie this in. You'll see how it ties in. Luke 16 is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I'm going to read this. This is a parable. If you haven't read this in a while, or maybe you've never read it, you read it and you're like, what's going on here? It's a parable. We have to remember that. But it gives us some parameters and understanding and principles. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. That's verse 19 and 20. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, there's, the, there's this great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, For I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This parable illustrates Solomon's words here in verses 4 to 6. And and everything he's been saying in chapter 8. On the one hand, you have a rich man who was lost. In his lifetime, he lived a good life. That's the unrighteous. They prosper, see? That's what Solomon's been saying. And on the other hand, you have Lazarus who received bad things in his life. He's covered with sores. He has no food. And the only food he has is the crumbs from that rich man's table. He's the righteous and he suffers. And then, as Solomon said, the same thing happens to both. They both die. Now in death, we learn that Lazarus is carried to heaven, while in death the rich man had no more reward and he's taken to hell. And so you see the connection there. He had nothing else. And while the parable continues, the rich man, realizing that he now has no hope, he's no longer living, asks that his brothers be warned that they will, so that they don't die and come to the same place, that give them a chance to repent. The living have hope. Basically saying while they live, there is hope for their escape. And then as the parable comes to an end, we read, and I'm picking up in verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abram, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Jesus' point here is that their only hope in believing is not someone coming back from the dead. Who would want to see that? 
I mean, can you imagine we leave church? We have, we have, we have a few choices out here in, in, the, in the graveyard. And all of a sudden, someone just came back to life. That'd wake you up. <laughs> Jesus said, Jesus said, even if that happened, they won't believe unless they believe the word of God. If I saw that and I didn't believe the word of God, it would do nothing for me. Even seeing Jesus raised from the dead would not convince a person unless he believes the word of God. It's not just the historical fact of the death and resurrection of Christ, but the, but the promise that is attached to the death and resurrection that must be trusted and believed. And where is that promise expounded? It's expounded in his word. You see, the only way for you to know if it'll be love or hate in the hand of God, the only way for you to know if God is for you or against you, the only way to know if the hand that holds you will be God's hand of righteousness or his hand of dread is is by looking into his word. Is what you do in this life when it comes to the word. It's what you do when it comes to the promises of God concerning life eternal. Even now, while you have breath, while you have breath, you can look to the promises of God. Think of just a few promises. We could be here all afternoon if I were to read them all, probably for days. But think of some of them. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, and you will be saved. It's a promise. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6. It's a promise, or maybe you would say it's just a fact being stated. You're promised eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It's a promise. Revelation says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Why? Because we'll rest from our labors. It's a promise. We will enter into the presence of God. It's a promise. And we'll know the fullness of joy. It's a promise. Our bodies will rise, never to die again. It's a promise. And Jesus says, I will be there for you. It's a promise. And these are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful promises. And if we believe them, they give us confidence here but they give us confidence when we face that last breath. That unless Jesus is a fraud and a liar, he will be there waiting for us. Now, in his commentary on this, Dr. Riken shares the, the dying words of the infamous uh, Giacomo Casanova. You've heard of Casanova. Um, you've probably seen some of the movies. He was a lot like Solomon. He had tasted almost everything that life had to offer and many sinful pleasures, as many of the movies and books point out. And we know from his writings that none of those experiences that he experienced, all the stuff that he went through, ever satisfied his soul. Yet we also know that at at the end of his life, there was a a testimony that was proclaimed by in front of many witnesses, and, and he expressed this hope in resurrection. He said this, I lived my life as a philosopher, much like Solomon, just seeking and trying to find meaning. He goes, but I die as a Christian. 
See, we know what it means to live like a philosopher. If we've learned anything over the weeks that we studied Ecclesiastes, Solomon has spelled that out for us. But the question that remains is, will we die as a Christian? Let me close with that question. Will you die as a Christian? And see, the only time you have to answer that question is while you are living. Again, one of the most important questions to answer. How you answer is the difference between love and hate. How you answer is the difference between receiving his righteousness or receiving his wrath. How you answer is the difference between being held in the hand of an angry God or held in the loving embrace of a compassionate Father. And so if you are wise, you'll get ready now. You'll get ready to die now by asking the living Christ to forgive you of your sins and trusting in his promise to raise you from the dead, guaranteeing you eternal life. That's the promise. That's my plea. That you flee. You flee from the wrath to come into the loving hands of your Savior. And if you do or I would guess most of you already have, when you come to the last of your days, you'll be able to die, die with full confidence in Christ. While there is life, there is hope. And that life and that hope is found in the loving, pierced hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's one thing, Lord, when we face the many challenges that we face in this world, many confusing things that we don't have answers, how comforting it is to know that our sovereign Lord God knows the answer. He's got the whole world in his hand. And for those of us, Lord, that have come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, we know that you uphold us with your omnipotent hand. And so we're thankful. And I pray now, Lord, for those who don't know you, who don't believe this, that, Father, before you take their last breath from them, I pray that they would confess Christ as Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.